And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello world, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie and this year Harmony and I are super excited to be back as part of the Miami Book Club. So this is our very first interview in order to get started with that. So to tell you all a little bit about Miami Book Fair, this year we've got authors like 3D Umergar, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jacinda Townsend, and Sarai Walker, just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They, along with authors like Patti Smith, Lisa Genova, Rabia Chaudhry, Cy Montgomery, and Sandra Cisneros, are so looking forward to sharing their work thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and streamed live from the fair from Sunday, November 13th through Sunday, November 20th. Please visit MiamiBookFair.com for more information or follow MBF at Miami Book Fair, hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. So to get us started, hi, 30. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Would you mind starting us off just telling us a little bit about yourself and giving us a summary of your book, Honor? Oh, geez, you won two summaries, huh? <laughs> okay. Well. I live in Cleveland, Ohio. I was born and raised in Bombay, India. I came to the U.S. when I was 21 to go to grad school to study journalism. I was a reporter at daily newspapers for many, many years. And then somewhere, I guess, in, in just, just before the turn of the century, I decided to, to try my hand at fiction writing and I now have, I think, Honor, the book that we are going to talk about today, is my ninth novel. And I've also written three children's picture books along this time. So, and I teach uh, creative writing and English lit at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. About the book, Honor, it basically tells the story of two women both of whom were born in India. One of them is Meena, a young Hindu woman who lives in one of the villages of India. And when the novel opens, we realize that there is a court case that that Meena has filed against her two brothers who have grievously harmed her husband for the simple sort of quote-unquote crime of being Muslim. They were dead set against Mina marrying out of the faith, out of the community, and they sort of exacted their revenge on him. They have also disfigured her very badly. And the other protagonist is Smita, who is an Indian-American journalist who kind of parachutes into India to cover the court case, to cover the trial. And we learn early on that Smita herself is sort of wrestling with some demons that have to do with her childhood 
in in India. She and her family have been gone from India for over 20 years. We discovered that she has vowed never to step foot into the country of her birth if she could possibly avoid it, but her sense of professionalism and also her obligation to a friend uh, brings her back. And And the novel then sort of proceeds to talk about sort of these two women, how their lives accidentally intersect, and and really what life lessons each has to teach the other. That was a beautiful summary for a very beautiful and a very powerful book. Thank you. To get us started today, the title for this book is extremely apt. Throughout the story, I was deeply self-reflecting on the fact that while I personally have a dictionary definition of honor, I don't know that I have such a deeply rooted personal sense of what the word means for me, whatever that says about me as an individual. (laughs) So I was wondering to get us started, how would you define honor? And how do you think your characters' definitions of honor differ from each other? Yeah, so I guess that's a great question. I guess my personal definition of honor would just be a person of integrity who keeps their word, who does not take shortcuts, who does not, you know, reflexively choose the convenient or easy path, who sacrifices for those who they love, whether that's an individual or the larger community, who who's righteous, you know, who stands up for what is true and what is right. That in my world or in my definition is what constitutes an honorable person, you know, somebody with honor. In the context of the book, the meaning of that simple word, that beautiful word, are much more complicated because it means different things to different people. For instance, Mina's brothers are convinced that she, by her act of marrying outside the faith, has brought dishonor to the family. And they see the sort of corrective measures that they use as as something good, as something positive, as a way of restoring the family, the good name of the family, of restoring honor back not just to themselves, but to the community in which all these characters reside. And And that was something I was really trying to toy with, if you will, in this novel, which is... You know, one of my core beliefs, Maggie, is that no human being is ever the villain of their own lives, of their own stories, you know. And I think one of the sort of strange things about this book is how the brothers are completely convinced about their own righteousness. You know, they they, they see her as somebody who has done something wrong and, and they never spend a moment reflecting on what their role. They almost see themselves as kind of helpless victims who were left with no choice other than to take the kind of drastic actions that they take in order to protect the larger community. What you said there about the fact that nobody is the villain of their own story really resonates with me. I saw that so clearly throughout the novel, how everybody, every character so deeply believes that they are acting with honor and that they are acting within for many of them what their faith and what their God tells them to be doing. And we see in so many ways the tensions that that brings. 
not just in the tragedy that leads to Mina's husband's death, but also I think in some smaller interactions that happen between Smita and Mohan and some of the biases that are being broken down between all of the characters throughout the novel. Mina's story in particular made me think long and hard about what honor meant for all of the reasons that you just outlined. Her life is changed forever by men whose definitions of honor feel like they're polar opposites of each other between her husband and her brothers. I came to this book, I think, in some ways from a place of ignorance, knowing writ large that there was some tension in India between Hindu and Muslim Indians, but not having dug much deeper beyond that kind of border or that top line sentiment. So I was wondering for readers who might have been starting from a similar knowledge basis to me going into this book, what do you hope they take away about the contemporary context of religious tension in India? Well, I'll answer that question, I think, in two ways. One is that I certainly hope that they do get, you know, a brief education in the fact that, that there is this ongoing tension. It, it certainly predates the contemporary era that this book is set in. There's, you know, for many, many years now, there's been these sporadic outbursts of, of violence in a, in a more macro sense, you know, where there are riots in the streets and things like that. But on a, in a more micro sense, there are all these, at, at least amongst poorer people, you know, people who have not had access to good kind of liberal, if you will, education systems. There is still this very deep set belief of, you know, in more sort of traditional parts of India that, that one should not waver from the path. One should marry within one's community. All those things are still very, very strict. It's not that every single instance of a interfaith marriage results in the kind of violence that we see in this book, but, but certainly there are some taboos against it. So I guess, I guess that's me answering your question about what are the takeaways. And, and one other thing I'll add just in the Indian context is I do want readers, if they are interested in the issue, to pay careful attention to what is actually happening in India right now under the present government. You know, every prime minister or every politician that I can remember in my lifetime has always played the religious card in India in one way or the other, you know, just as a way of deflecting attention from the more serious issues that confront any poor nation, right? You know, so you have high food prices or, you know, housing crisis or anything like that. And it's very convenient to pit groups of people against one another and, and, you know, divert people's attention in that way. So that is nothing new, just to put this in some kind of context. But we are seeing sort of those age-old tendencies on steroids these days. You know, there are, there are instances now of journalists and political activists being charged with a terrorism charge and therefore locked up for maybe two years before their case ever comes to trial. And then the case might be thrown out of court because of lack of evidence, but the damage has been done, you know. So there are people, there are forces at work in India today who very much want to change the 
basic character of the nation from being a secular democracy, which is what its founding in 1947 was. I mean, the Constitution calls it a secular democracy. And there's a great sort of push to turning it into a Hindu state, you know, much as Pakistan, for instance, is a Muslim state. So to me, that, that would be a real tragedy because one of the most glorious things about India is that it does have this kind of diversity. And that to me has always been one of its hallmarks. And to lose that would be a tragedy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to situate that in both the historical and contemporary context for our listeners. Sure. Not to put you on the spot, but do you happen to have any suggestions potentially for further reading that we could be doing? Oh, gosh. You know, nothing that comes to mind right off the top of my head. I mean, I'm getting most of my information, frankly, these days about what's happening right now through journalism articles rather than I, I I can't say that I have read a book that comes to mind immediately about the situation under Mr. Modi. In but but you know if you just look up treatment of Muslims in in India right now, if you put in words like bulldozers, which is becoming some big thing where they are using bulldozers to just knock down businesses and homes of people who are perceived to be critics of the current government. If you just do those kinds of rudimentary searches, I think a lot of information will come up. I do have one book recommendation that I just thought of, and it's it's not nonfiction. It's, it's a novel that just came out. It's a first novel that just came out a few years ago, which I think it, it, it sort of, it's not directly addressing the issues that we are talking about, but it does give you some kind of a contemporary flavor for the kind of endemic corruption and and you know the treatment of minorities both sexual minorities and and uh, religious minorities in India right now and that's a beautiful novel called A Burning and the author is Megha Majumdar and it's just a really beautiful book and I think for any reader who has read Honor and enjoyed it, A Burning might be a good follow-up novel to read. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. And I will be sure I will be sure to do that. And we always assign our listeners homework at the end of every episode. Listeners, this week, that is your homework. <laughs> you said so many interesting things there that I want to dig into. But I guess starting from the end and thinking about journalism and the role that journalism plays in the way that we understand information on the global context, but also in the book. Part of Smita's con conflict as a journalist is trying to maintain her emotional professional distance in a situation that would make most people, if not all people, extremely emotional as she's getting to know Mina. How did you think about uh, crafting that internal conflict for her? And is there anything you wish that non-journalists knew about writing news in tense and violent and emotional situations? You know, I was a journalist myself for many years. So the question about sort of the professional struggles, right, that, that Smita has. To be honest with you, you know, this was something I borrowed and sort of laid at her feet from my own journalistic career. I was never a foreign correspondent the way uh, Smita was. 
But even, you know, I, I wrote a lot about marginalized people in the U.S. And it was the same kind of conflict, you know. If you are in a position to help somebody, should you? Or does that sort of skew the work? How do you do less harm? You know, how how do you serve? And who do you serve? Do you serve? Is 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 your priority as a as a journalist primarily to serve your readers? Most people would say yes, but is it also if you can help a source along the way? Is that something you should consider doing? And that whole notion of objectivity in journalism, you know, it's something that clearly has served American journalists well for the most part. But do you get to a point where advocacy journalism, for instance, might actually reflect people's reality better than, you know, the danger of objectivity in journalism sometimes is that if you present all sides of an issue or both sides of an issue fairly, do you end up bearing the truth somehow in doing that? So does it make better sense to to take a point of view, to, to take a position, you know? To be honest with you, I'm no longer a journalist, but I never, I, I used to grapple with this issue all the time internally. I never came to an answer. I never came to a conclusion. I could really see both sides of the argument. And it was this dilemma that I brought to to Smita, except in her case, it's the the divisions between, say, covering somebody like Mina and and her sort of coming in from the West, you know, parachuting in. I mean, the, the class and the educational level, the divisions are so stark that it's it's even more challenging for her to deal with these issues. Something that really stuck out to me is that Smita is constantly, as she's digging deeper into this story, kind of having to push back against her Western lens and Western biases and, and also remind herself actively that these things aren't just happening in India. These are tragedies and crises that are happening all over the world, also happening in the United States, and kind of forcing herself not to other the story as it's developing. And that really made me think about the fact that honor is a story that explores, I think, how place can shape identity. Both Mina and Smita's stories and identities are really influenced by the tensions that exist between the places they grow up and then the places that they choose to live or find themselves as adults. So I was wondering what you wanted readers to take away from that exploration of place and identity and how you were thinking about the interconnection of those two things as you were writing the novel. Well, I mean, look at what's happening in the U.S. right now, right? The truest divisions in our societies seem to be between the urban setting and the rural setting. I mean, look at voting patterns, something as basic as that. You can almost predict how somebody is going to vote not as an individual, of course, but, but, you know, as a collective, as a group, based on where they are situated in their lives, right? So if that can happen in a country like ours with so much more wealth and presumably, you know, a larger number of educated citizens, etc., if that kind of a division can still persist in, in a country like the United States, you can imagine how that 
divide plays itself out in a place like India, right? Where especially so many women, especially, are still, they don't go to schools. They're not educated. And even if they do, even if they go up to, say, eighth grade or something, they're just getting such weak and it's such rudimentary, you know, just because you know how to sign your name on a bank check, let's say, doesn't doesn't mean that you're a qualified or an educated person. It doesn't mean that you understand geography, something as basic as that. It doesn't understand that, it doesn't mean that you understand that where your little village places within all of India, much less where India places, you know, in the world, right? So I think, yeah, I think those kinds of divisions are very apparent to somebody like Smita, who it's not just because she lives in America now that she has this worldliness and this sophistication. If Smita had continued living her life in Bombay, in India, she would have had that same degree of education and sophistication, etc. Because she comes from wealth, you know. There is ancestral wealth in her family. She's grown up in this very nice neighborhood in probably the most cosmopolitan and sophisticated city in India. So she has all these pluses and poor Mina has all these strikes against her. You know, being a woman, being under the authority of her brothers, really not being educated, not being allowed to get a taste of the wider world at all. And when she finally defies their authority and decides to find out a little bit for herself, first by simply accepting a job outside the home, something that for most of us is just the most commonplace thing in the world to do once you're, once you're a certain age, you know, to go to work. But in her case, she has to be penalized for making these really basic decisions of where to work, whom to love, where to live. You know, she has to pay a heavy price for all of these commonplace decisions. I think that the way that class is handled in the novel it happens with a lot of nuance, and as well as sexism. Something, a scene that really sticks out to me happens at the very beginning of the novel. And it's when Smita and Mohan are really having kind of their first real interaction with each other where they aren't just making small talk and he doesn't understand why she doesn't love Mumbai essentially the way that he does and she has to essentially point out to him you're a man and I am a woman in this context so we're having very different experiences and you clearly have a high level of class privilege on top of all of them. that's right as their friendship and later relationship develops they're both trying to kind of untangle each other's biases and experiences about the city. How did you kind of think about crafting those early conversations between the two of them to make it bridge the gap of bias rather than sort of take them apart in different directions? You know, it it sort of flowed a little organically. The conversations flowed, especially in the car when they're traveling together to visit Mina for the first time. I knew that there would be some tension between the two of them right off the bat. I mean, these are not, neither one of them are characters who are going to be content with making small talk for any length of time, you know. So I knew that they would clash. I had a pretty good sense of who each of them were. I mean, they came to me in their early 
incarnations, if you will, when they were both pretty polarized, as you just mentioned, in, in how they viewed their experiences in India, for instance. I knew that they were sort of like boxers in a ring, you know, on, on opposite sides of those kinds of issues. And I also had a pretty good sense of who they were as people, what their backgrounds were, what their family stories were, what their backstory was. And because I knew that, having them speak to each other, it felt natural that they would clash, you know, and that they would have very, they would be in their own corners, you know, and neither one was really willing to budge a whole lot. I mean, once in a great while, you know, Smita throws in the towel and says, okay, yeah, okay, you're right. But you can tell she doesn't, she's just doing it for the sake of keeping peace, you know. But I think one of the nice things that happens in this novel is, as you pointed out, as time goes by, they really do start seeing each other's point of view, you know, and they meet somewhere in the middle. You know, Mohan starts the novel by being this gung-ho, rah-rah-rah, India is the greatest country in the world, which is the kind of brainwashing that all of us go through no matter where we grow up, right? Any place that we happen to be born in somehow magically becomes the greatest country in the world, right? You notice that? It seems like a trend everywhere. So he clearly comes from that place, and it's a completely unthinking, kind of blind love for nation. He's never really, he's never had to challenge his beliefs himself, and he's never had somebody else challenge his beliefs for him. You know, Smita is at the other extreme. She has forgotten everything that's beautiful and good about India because she's just nursing this this trauma that she has suffered in her teenage years in India. So neither one initially is willing to look at what the other person has to say or teach them. But as a friendship develops, as as respect for each other's points of view develop, they begin to open up to each other. And I think by the end of the novel, they are really, I mean, they have more or less similar views. It's its kind of interesting how their forced proximity and natural respect for each other kind of just fosters the opportunity for them to have to connect and kind of have to work through some of right, that. Right. I, I have to tell you that those scenes were hard to write. You know, it's always easier to write the more dramatic moments in a in a novel, you know, if there's if there's a you know anything major that's having happening in a novel, a dramatic moment uh, or a climax or something like that, it's easier in some ways to write those scenes. But it's the build up to that, you know, the hours that they spend in the car together, sort of trapped with one another, with just the scenery whizzing past them on the outside of the car. That was sort of tricky. You know, you don't want the novel to move at a plodding pace. Um, you want something interesting to happen in their interactions with each other. But you are truly reduced to just, you know, their words to one another in that setting. There's no other crutch for me as a writer to rely on in those moments, you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure, too, there's also the careful balance when you're crafting scenes that are so dialogue heavy, making sure that they are still interacting as people would. Yeah. Something I really noticed is that they always stopped talking at the moment of frustration where I would also stop talking to people. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right. Like I said, you know, they've just, I mean, they are trapped in this. You may as well be trapped in an elevator, right? A car, an elevator, more or less the same thing. And, and they are on a mission, right? It's, they can't let their annoyance at each other, which they do. They are, they are irritated with one another's positions sometimes, but they can't let that get in the way of covering the story. Right. And, and Smita has to rely on Mohan as the local person who speaks the local dialect. She has to trust him and rely on him quite a bit. Especially in the context that part of the reason that he ends up coming with her is because there's a sense of physical safety that he's right. going to be able to provide That's her. Right. That's right. Just by being male. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think in many ways, part of what I loved about this novel is that it's also just a novel about human connection. And so for Smita and Mohan, there's this moment of uh, tension and frustration that builds into that respect and friendship, as we've talked about. But Smita and Mina also have very different backgrounds, but they find their common ground faster. And it's largely through the experience of loneliness. So I was wondering how you thought about sort of bridging that much different gap and kind of making their connection be their kind of isolation and how we can break out of our bubbles of isolation. It's, it's such a smart point, Maggie. I, I wouldn't have ever thought of framing it exactly in the way that you just did. But it is, you're right, it is a connection born out of loneliness. And that loneliness, of course, has its roots in trauma, right? And the trauma, to a large extent, has its roots in two things. One is being female, both of them, but also, you know, the religious aspects of the trauma that each one of them faces. I, I'm being a little coy and talking around, you know, I don't want to give anything away in terms of plot. So I think you're right in your initial observation about their bond being because of loneliness. But I think that loneliness, because it has, you know, it's not like one of the characters is lonely because she's been an only child and the other one is lonely because she has been traumatized. They, they, their loneliness has its roots in the same place, even though they are separated by decades, even though they are separated by different incidents. But I think it's that shared trauma. And, and of course, in Mina's case, there is complete isolation. I mean, her loneliness is not like a psychic loneliness. It has a real physicality, if you will, to it. She is basically ostracized by the entire village. And even her mother-in-law, whom she lives with, is so conflicted towards her and really treats her pretty shabbily because she holds Mina responsible for all the grief and all the harm that has come to this family because of her son marrying a Hindu woman, you know and then being attacked by the Hindu brothers-in-law. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I think their bond, and I can't help but think that it's a bond of gender also. It's just a bond of shared life experiences. And I mean, this is the thing about, about the bonds of gender, is that you don't, you can be from different social classes. You know, in that sense, Mina and Mohan, have much more in common, right? Because they come from a similar 
educational and class background, both of them. And yet it's Mohan being a privileged male in a male-dominated society that acts as a wedge between them coming close together. She and Mina don't have those differences, you know. So in some ways, the bonds of gender trump the the divisions of class. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that there's a lot to be said for the deeply shared context that both women have, even if it's never verbalized between the two of them, it's recognized between the two absolutely, of them. Absolutely. And they both see it in each other. You know, you would think that Smita being this, you know, foreign correspondent, you know, somebody who gets paid really for observation, you know, she's supposed to be the reporter. She's supposed to be the one who is a quick study that she would recognize this quality in Mina. But Mina says something to the effect of, I can see it in your eyes. You too have known the curse of loneliness or something along those lines, she says at one point. So they both recognize it in one another. That was one of my favorite lines in the novel. It was really what sparked that question for me. But you're absolutely right too, I think, in the sense that Mina's loneliness is so tangible and so physical even in the metaphor i think of of her house her half burned down house where she still goes back to to feel close to her husband that safety that was violated yeah i don't want to we've talked about some really heavy topics because this is a book that deals i think with some really deep and important discussions but i also don't want to ignore the fact that at the center of this novel are two love stories that are beautiful and hopeful and tragic so I was wondering why it was important for you, for both Mina and Smita to have love stories and how you thought about crafting those romantic relationships across cultural divides. Great, great question. First of all, I am the kind of reader who cannot stand novels that are just deeply, deeply, deeply pessimistic and make me feel like, you know, just woe is me, everything is wrong with the world when I get done reading them. I am by nature a hopeful person. And I guess that because I'm that kind of a reader, I think I'm that kind of a writer. It is always important to me. And also, you know, I grew up in India. I was, I lived there till I was 21 years old. And I used to occasionally volunteer, do some work in slums and things like that. So I know something about the poor that may not be obvious to somebody just sort of looking at them from the outside in, which is that I think in some ways poor people in India are more hopeful than maybe the upper middle class people are. You know, the people that I heard complaining the loudest when I was growing up were rich people, you know, who found fault with everything. But the poor people what what choice did they have other than to be hopeful you know so every time they could send a child to school they had all these wild hopes and dreams about how that education would better the life of that child right so hope seems to me a very very essential ingredient it's it's realism you know it's not some daffy-eyed Oh, let's, let's, let's end this novel on a hopeful note. It's not like that. 
if I'm going to tell the truth about India in the best way that I can, hope has to be an essential ingredient of that, I feel like. In the case of Mina, I mean, the whole novel hinges around, you know, what happens to her happens because she falls in love. So I just thought it was important for us as readers to know what, who Mohan was, I mean, sorry, who Abdul was, her husband, to, to sort of shine a light on him and, and the goodness and the innocence of his character to, to make us understand why somebody like Mina who really has never defied the authority of her brothers up to this point, why she would fall in love with somebody like Abdul. So that love story kind of wrote itself, if you will. It was a little cornier with Smita and, and Mohan. I, I really wrestled with the idea of whether there should be a second love story. You know, it was possible to write their story as just a platonic relationship where he helps her discover Mina's story and somehow the novel ends on, on that note. But I also thought it would be interesting to point out that despite the divisions of geography, you know, Smita lives 10,000 miles away in the States, Mohan is, you know, pretty sort of rooted in India. I thought that despite all those difficulties, given their class background, their love story would be much more palatable and much more acceptable. You know, it would unfold without the kind of social barriers that somebody like Nina would fix. And I wanted to show both sides of India, you know, the urban reality and the rural reality. And again, in real life, it's not like it's not like these things fall into place exactly that way. I mean, there can be exceptions to that. But for the most part, you know, the more education you have, the more money you have, the more opportunities you have, who is going to stand in the way of such a union versus somebody like Mina who who has to battle so much more than somebody like Smita does? So I thought it was interesting to show these two parallel love stories, but also talk about, you know, without addressing it head on, just to point out the disparities in the obstacles that each one of the two women faced. I think for me as a reader, it was a really lovely and smart choice to do the flashbacks in Mina's perspective, where we really get to see their story come together, her and Abdul, for two reasons for me. The first being that, I think it really emphasizes the fact that moments of beauty in life are moments of beauty, even when further down the road, the story might end in trauma or tragedy. And that doesn't negate the earlier beauty that happened. And then the second being that I think it also creates another parallel between Mina and Smita, because we also see the way in which Mina has to overcome her personal biases and the things that she's taught. And there's this really powerful conversation between her and Abdul where he asks her if she really believes that she can't be with a Muslim man. And she thinks about it and says, no, I don't believe that. That's just what I've been told. And right. as a reader, I was like, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, it's an epiphany for her in that moment, right? Because again, you know, beliefs that go unchallenged just stay unchallenged, right? But just like 
Smita pokes holes in all the things that Mohan believes, Abdul kind of plays that role for, for Meena. He said, do you really believe this? And the minute she thinks about it, she thinks, wait a minute, where did, where did I learn this? This doesn't come, this is not innate. You know, this is not some innate belief in me. I was taught this and do I really believe it? You know? And it felt it felt like an epiphany while I was reading it. Cool. You you rooted for her so much while you watched her take so much agency over her right. life and such risk and such and risk. such risk. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Deciding that taking control outweighed the risks, even when the risks I think came to light and right. came to be. Right. Exactly. There is so much else I could ask you, but I don't want to monopolize your time this morning. But is there anything that you wanted to talk about regarding honor that I haven't asked about yet? Only this, I think, Maggie, which is, you know, my hope as a writer. Of course, I have no control. Once the book is out in the world, I have no control over how a reader is going to ingest or, you know, respond to a novel, right? But if I had any hope, or any wishes, it would be this, that when somebody reads a book about these characters in India, I mean, by all means, you know, revel in their successes, root for them, you know, be be outraged on their behalf, all of that. But my hope always is that the reader makes connections between the story that they're reading and their own lives in the United States, you know. Our issues in this time may be different, but they are also similar. You know, we too are learning how quickly freedoms can be snatched away, for instance, right? So I don't want readers to come to my books and say, oh, those people over there, look how, look how terrible their lives are, you know? And thank God we are so blessed, you know, we don't, we don't have those issues. For me, literature has always been this this platform or this vehicle for human connection across gender, across class, across geography, you know, and I can only hope that my readers feel the same way. I can only feel, I can only speak for myself, but I certainly felt that. And one of the tenets of our podcast and the reason why we started was because we believed in the power of words to foster solidarity and showcase our similarities while also understanding that our differences need to be acknowledged too. Beautiful. So Beautifully thank said. you so much for sharing that. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you. Are there any upcoming projects our listeners should be keeping their eyes peeled for? Yeah, actually, I'm going to have a novel come out next year. I think it's going to come out in the fall. It's another novel and it's called The Museum of Failures. Oh, I work in museums, so now I'm I'm extra uh-huh. peaked. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually it's just a metaphor. So there's there's no scene in a museum or anything like that. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Thridi, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. All right, listeners, we will see you next week. Have a great rest of your weeks. Goodbye, everybody. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. 
You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.